the Gospel according to St. Luke, the 15th chapter. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the Gospel of the Lord. You should know the following story has been used with permission. Since he was a toddler, my middle son Jacob has always had the worst temper. One of the worst temper tantrums he's ever thrown was when he was in the first grade. It was an early fall day, much like today, and started off as any other school day. As I love to prepare breakfast for my sons, and I especially love cooking seasonally, I fixed pumpkin pancakes. The boys scampered downstairs, and I set before them three plates of pumpkin pancakes and warm maple syrup. Who could have predicted the ridiculous scene that was about to unfold from this unassuming six-year-old boy? It quickly became very apparent that Jacob hates pumpkin pancakes. Why? We'll never know. This kid eats sushi, foie gras, bone marrow, so I don't know. But he does as was evidenced that morning by the fact that he not only flat out refused to eat these pancakes, but when confronted with the choice between eating them and the unprecedented before school time out, he took the time out, which was worsened by the fact that while in said time out from his window, he watched the school bus pick up his brothers and his friends. They climbed into the bus without him and it took off towards the school and out of sight. Jacob then flew into a rage. He ripped pictures off his wall. He threw toys at the door. He screamed until he gagged. This lasted for about an hour, at which time I then drove him to school and made him tell the principal and his teacher why he was late for school, all because his tantrum over pumpkin pancakes. <laughs> For the record, seven years later, Jacob now understands how to avoid pumpkin pancakes in a much more mature way. 
keeping his temper well in hand, having learned some very valuable anger management skills, for which I am grateful because he is 196 pounds and quickly closing in on six feet. But that morning remains one of the most impressive temper that I have ever seen. And to this day, when someone asks me and says, well, Sarah, let's be careful. After all, you didn't want to break his spirit, did you? I reply, absolutely, I wanted to break his spirit. <laughs> because this world does not need another man who acts like a toddler and cannot control his words, actions, or thoughts. Little did I know how prophetic those words were lacking only a Sharpie and a Twitter account. And our first reading today from um, Exodus, Moses has his shot at tyranny, or at least a solid monarchy. It has a sort of Brexit moment when God turns to him and says, I'm done with these people. <clears throat> I'm breaking my commandments. I'm breaking my agreement. I'm out. What's wrong with your people, Moses? They are unfaithful, they are stiff-necked, they are thick-skulled, they are unrepentant. How about this? I destroy them, but I spare you, and from you I will make a great nation. Here we see God itching to throw a temper tantrum, as God is wont to do from time to time. It's as if God is begging for a timeout to be sent to his room to wreak some serious havoc. We envision God with fire in one hand, brimstone in another, saying, Come on, Moses, say the word, and I'll start smiting. But Moses says to God, Um, so yeah, these are not my people. These are your people. And this is not how we're going to handle this, God. Do you really think we want our enemies saying that you destroyed your own people? That's bad PR. We have an agreement here, after all. Remember your people whom you promised to save and not destroy. Pull yourself together, God. <clears throat> Maybe some deep breaths. Count to ten. Some anger management skills would be good here, God. Moses continues. Furthermore, God. Remember, Abraham... Remember how he negotiated with you to save the city of Sodom when you were itching to destroy it and how you changed your mind and did not destroy it? And remember how you changed your mind that day on the mountain when you asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, and you changed your mind and spared his life? And then remember when your angel decided not to destroy Jacob that terrifying night on the banks of the river Jabbok? When the two wrestled until dawn, but instead of destroying Jacob, you changed his name to Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. Remember those former times, God? When you were on a search and destroy mission, and you changed your ways instead to a search and rescue mission? And Moses stops and tries to catch his breath and whispers to God, you don't have to do this, you know. You, after all are the Almighty God, the everlasting God. And you have the power to do anything, including changing your mind. Please change your mind, God. And God does. I don't know why we find it comforting to call God unchanging, because Scripture shows us repeatedly 
that God does change God's mind, more than once even, as in the examples offered by Moses, as in the story of Jonah, God changes God's mind and does not destroy the city of Nineveh, sending Jonah into his own self-righteous and ridiculous temper tantrum of his own. Scripture then shows us that God exists in a very vibrant and ever-changing relationship with humanity, which is why God does not exist on a shelf or as a statue or under glass. This is a living God for a living people. The Bible then, is a love story between a spirited and active people and a dynamic and responsive God. There is nothing static about this relationship. Not only is this comforting in times of old, as in the days of Abraham, Isaac, Moses, and Jonah, but this is comforting in our times as well, as God bids us to follow suit to move from a mission of search and destroy to one of search and rescue. It's no longer God's way to search out the lost and broken and destroy or punish them as in days of old. No, God's new way in Christ is to seek out the lost and broken, to rescue, to heal, to love, as in today's gospel images of seeking and rescuing, a precious coin or a lost sheep. And should we mistakenly think that this sounds easy and fluffy, deep down we know that it is not. Most of you by now have seen the news in these last days regarding David Weltman, former director of Hillel House just across the street and the allegations made against him of sexual abuse of a minor. I feel like I can't not mention that today. As trial approaches in a few weeks, we pray for this friend and former colleague and neighbor, as well as for those bringing accusations against him. While I believe the very grace I preach, I am also deeply grieved by having to have conversations with my sons and my students that no mother or pastor ever wants to have. I don't think I'm alone in this conflict. The Christian in me proclaims grace to all victims and all victimizers, but the mother in me isn't so enthusiastic to proclaim grace. And if my children were ever a victim of such things, think I might even be unwilling, or maybe even unable, to proclaim such grace. In times like this, one side of us seems to snap into a search and destroy mode, an eye for an eye, human justice. However, the other side snaps into search and rescue as instruments of Christ-like mercy, God's justice. So here we are where faith and world collide, right in our very own neighborhood. But here's the thing. Thankfully, God's grace does not depend upon my willingness or unwillingness, or ability or inability to proclaim it. God searches out the lost and the broken and the hurting, both the imprisoned and the free. 
the victim and the victimizer, especially during those times when humans hesitate. This really is what we call amazing grace, grace in that it is love poured out over all people, and amazing because God is able to do this even when, or especially when, we hesitate. This is life-giving gospel, that this dynamic God whom we worship models for us what it looks like to change ways from destruction to rescue, from ways of death to ways of life, from ways of punishment to ways of grace. This is what the cross of Christ finally accomplishes. God changes from destroying sinful people to redeeming them, and God asks us to follow suit in this world where indeed there is plenty that cries out to be sought out and rescued from the violence that rages all around us. Our violence to this planet must end. Mother Earth needs to be rescued. This very week, our current administration finalized a repeal of a clean water regulation that limits the use of polluting chemicals in bodies of water. Our violence to immigrants must end. The ones fleeing to our country need to be rescued. As migrants from Central America seeking asylum in the US continue to be barred from entry while this ridiculous legal fight plays out in our courts, as boatfuls of Hurricane Dorian refugees are turned away from our Florida shores for not having proper travel visas, justified under the suspicion that some of them might be gang members. Their violence to one another must end. Our safety in schools and in public needs to be rescued as students wait their turn for their school to be shot up as public and mass shootings don't even shock us anymore as we lay down our bodies instead of our arms. Finally, our violence to ourselves must end. Our trust and our identity as children of God needs to be rescued as we regularly convince ourselves that we are without value, not at all worth searching for, much less rescuing. When will we grasp the amazing grace extended to us? When will our minds take hold of the truths that our hearts already dare to believe that we, you and I, are worth everything to God. That God doesn't randomly stumble upon you, coincidentally finding you after flipping over the couch cushions. You are not loose change. You are a precious coin. God actively searches for you, for you in particular, for you specifically. Searching every nook and cranny of this vast universe, never stopping until you are found and you are rescued. The amazing grace that pours over the world pours over you as well, and me. No matter who you are or what you've done or not done, however lost a sheep you are or however prodigal a son or a daughter you are, God searches for you, you precious lamb. Not in order to destroy you, to rescue you, to heal all that is broken within you, to love you without condition, without end, to put you on his shoulders and carry you home. 
No matter how far you run, no matter how astray you might feel, no matter what shadowy corner of this universe you might hide in, no matter how stiff-necked, unfaithful, and unrepentant you might be, God invites you into this amazing grace and rejoices over you. Welcome to this amazing grace where every wretch is saved, where all the blind can suddenly see clearly where all of the hopeless have their hope restored, and where all of the lost are finally found. Amen.